welcome to Vistas by WebCheck Security. News, views, and insights into the cybersecurity realm, leadership, and entrepreneurship produced by WebCheck Security. My name is Greg Johnson, and I'm your host. Today, we discuss with a special guest, Romaine Marshall of Armstrong Teasdale HB80 or House Bill 80, a Utah bill that revolutionizes what we call affirmative defense. Vistas is sponsored by Vivint Smart Home. If you're looking to have the best in home automation, then go no further than Vivint Smart Home. Have you ever wondered how to secure your house? <laughs> we'll be talking about cybersecurity today, but how do you secure your house? We'll call this number. You ready? 1-800-570-1313. That's right. 1-800-570-1313. And finally, Vistas, as always, is honored to be sponsored by Nexus IT, a worry-free, hyper-responsive approach to providing world-class IT support and solutions so leaders can focus on their business. All right, now to our special guest today. Romain Marshall is uh, one of the finest gentlemen I've ever known. He is a cyber and privacy lawyer extraordinaire. It's my pleasure to introduce him as a dear friend and colleague. He is with Armstrong Teasdale. Armstrong Teasdale helps clients protect their data businesses and reputations from cybersecurity and data privacy incidents. He has represented clients in response to hundreds of incidents involving data breaches, ransomware, malware attacks, security misconfigurations, wire fraud, software vulnerabilities, social engineering, and other exploits, and in resulting litigation and regulatory investigations. Romain is also an experienced business litigator and trial lawyer. He has served as lead counsel in multiple jury and bench trials in business disputes, including claims for breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, unfair competition, trade secret misappropriation, negligence, and fraud. This guy rocks, guys. As a frequent author and speaker, Romain develops and directs workshops, training events, uh, analyzing digital transformation and emerging technologies such as blockchain, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and their intersections with cybersecurity, data privacy, and business laws. Welcome, listeners, our friend, Romaine Marshall. Hello, my friend. Hi, Greg. Good to, good to be with you again, and, and I look forward to this next, next uh, few minutes to discuss, discuss House Bill 80 and the Utah Cybersecurity Affirmative Defense Act. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's, an, important, it's an important thing. Now, last time you were on, Romaine, we, we gave uh, everyone your uh, absolutely cool uh, background, uh, your beautiful family, your Maori roots, uh, and how you came to have that delightful accent and athletic build, <laughs> playing rugby and basketball and whatnot. But yep. uh, we're going to dive right into it today, um, Romaine. Okay. And first of all, let's tell our listeners about HB80. Why did HB80 come to the table? What is it? And, and how does it affect the U.S. at large? Because this is not just a Utah thing, although this is a Utah House bill. So let's start there. Yeah, thanks, Greg. So I think everyone is familiar now with um, cyber attacks and the impacts they have on companies from a legal perspective. So, for example, I think even some of the listeners may have been parties to certain lawsuits that were either brought on their behalf or uh, against the company that they belonged to. There has been a lot of litigation 
against, say, Target, Home Depot, TJ Maxx, Starbucks, uh, dozens and dozens of companies over the last 10 years uh, that have been sued after they've suffered a hacking incident by class action or in class action lawsuits wherein the claim is asserted that consumers or employees or sometimes even shareholders have been damaged as a result of a cyber attack. And so the allegations in those lawsuits are company or organization that suffered the attack, you were negligent in the way you maintained, collected, and stored the personal information that is mine as the consumer or employee or or another one of those types of parties I described. And when a lawsuit is alleged, negligence is typically the main claim. And under a negligence lawsuit, uh, the plaintiffs have to establish that, one, the company had a duty as it relates to how they collect and secure the data that they collect from, say, consumers, that they breached that duty or violated it, and that as a result, a consumer or an employee or other party suffered some kind of harm, and that that harm allows for them to be paid or to receive a damages award. Now, that kind of claim, that negligence claim, in Utah, through the statute, if an organization gets sued and they comply with various things in the statute, they have an affirmative defense, which uh-huh. means they have the ability to file a, file with the court a dismissal paper or dismissal papers and saying, Judge, this doesn't apply to us because we've fulfilled obligations under the Utah Cybersecurity Affirmative Defense Act and we no longer need to be part of this lawsuit. So it's kind of like a safe harbor almost, if you will. Is that a good way to describe it? That's a very good way to describe it. It's 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 a safe harbor from lawsuits if certain things are done before the the kind of action that would otherwise trigger the lawsuit in the first place. Gotcha, gotcha. And 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 so to the third question that I had there, which is what what's the impact on the United States at large? So if this applies to businesses in the U.S. and there's a safe harbor. Are there safe yeah. harbor laws on the books with other states? What's the trend here? Yeah, so, so there are a few other states that have a similar type of law. Um, for example, Ohio has adopted a safe harbor statute that is very similar. Um, and, and New York, their Department of Financial Services has adopted something very similar in that they will set forth guidance and guidelines that if are met and a data breach happens, that you you have that as a defense also. Other states will follow, I think, but, but even though they haven't right now, the same bases that are provided under the Utah statute as an affirmative defense are also going to be a defense in other states and in other cases, but they're not 
and this is the critical distinction, they're not an affirmative defense. In other words, it's not a defense that will make something or make a case go away. It's a defense that then has to be argued and proven to a judge or a jury is sufficient. Gotcha. So to, to, to argue, to, to answer your question another way, Greg, is that the statute doesn't release or absolve an organization from lawsuits outside of the state of Utah or brought by residents of other states, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, but the same standards that govern the defense under the Utah statute can be asserted as a defense in those other states or against those other parties as well. Fantastic. And the trend is that other states may be uh, yeah, introducing I think similar so. legislation, right? Yeah. Yes. I think Ohio yes. and Connecticut, but you, you're in better. You're plugged into the legal community more than I am. What other states have you heard of that are talking about this? Well, I, I know of, um, at least in, in Massachusetts, where they have a requirement for organizations to have a written information security program in place. Mm-hmm. Oregon also has a requirement for organizations that collect personal information to have a written information security program in place. And while those states don't say, if you do, you have an affirmative defense, there is a presumption that if you have a written information security program or a WISP, there, there is a presumption that that meets the requisite duty that is asserted under a negligence claim. Um, I think, you know, other states and other industries will will say, do these things and you're covered. But that's going to take years to develop because problem with some, a lot of states don't want to commit to providing a safe harbor yet because the technology uh, is changed. Technology is changing so quickly. The types of defenses that companies can have or should have change you so quickly too so some of the underlying requirements in the statute for example the wisp mm-hmm. are difficult to define because they're not static they're always changing so mm-hmm. under the utah statute i'll give you an example the utah statute cites to several frameworks yes or industry standards that are generally seen as providing good security if if an organization adheres to them. For example, NIST, Cybersecurity Framework, is cited and referenced in the Utah statute as the type of program that if developed and adhered to provides a safe harbor under the under the affirmative defense statute. There's also referenced the CIS 20 critical controls mm-hmm. and others as well. Right. And that was my next question too, Romaine, is what does a business have to do to qualify? And I think you've just answered that. It, the way I like to describe it is they have to be in alignment with yes. a, an acceptable framework. And I like the way Utah wrote that law uh, because the WISP, as you call it, and I love that term, WISP, Written Information Security Plan. Um, if, if the WISP is in accordance with a framework that other standards bodies are working on and evolving, for example, PCI is about to come out with their 4.0 in this this next year 
Actually, yes. it'll be this year. They've they've had yep. the RFCs and and the, kind of the beta of it, as you will. There are some yep. changes there, and uh, and and there are changes that are evolving uh, in terms. Of, you know, we we went in PCI from a seven character password, for example, yeah, uh, to passphrase, and now we're looking at um, a, a stronger emphasis on multi factors of authentication. So these things are run by standards bodies, and so rather than try to dictate what you have yep. to have. Yeah. Um, put yourself in alignment with a standards body. And that seems to be how Utah has written this particular uh, law. So would you agree with that? And yeah. that to qualify yeah. for the safe harbor, yes. a, a business has to align to one of those frameworks. Yes. And, and also a program, uh, a, a written information security program has as its underlying objective, mm-hmm. um, tailoring that program to an organization's specific needs. For example, if you if, mm-hmm. if you're a company that's in healthcare and you're collecting dates of birth, social security numbers, driver's licenses, payment card information, you know, and and not to mention actual health information, you know that you have sensitive or information or personally identifiable information. So your program has to be developed extremely well in order to protect all of that. Yes. Now, if you're, a, if you're a B2B and you don't have consumers, patients, and only a few employees, your program doesn't need to be as developed because the regulated data you collect is minimal. Of course, you still have trade secrets. You still collect things from some of the businesses you have relationships with that are sensitive mm-hmm. or proprietary. And so your program should be uh, established to protect the confidentiality of those things. But those things are typically regulated data. Or to put it from the threat actor standpoint, those things aren't typically the types of data that a um, hacker, cyber criminal, threat mm-hmm. actor is after because they, they don't have value uh, on the internet or on the dark web. Of course, trade secrets for you know a sophisticated type of business would have value to competitors, um, but those would have different types of protection or security levels than is required for or more of the personal and sense other sensitive information. Very good. Very good. Now let's let's throw out a couple of scenarios. So so Romaine, if a business has just started down the path, but so their information, their WISP <laughs> is not complete, but clearly they have it, they've started it, um, they've identified the framework. So the, the question is if they get popped in that point and they're implementing controls and they're, uh, they're fleshing out their information security policy, uh, what, what are the indicators that you would feel comfortable presenting to a judge and what would the judge accept as evidence that they might qualify for this safe harbor? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I, I, so I would, I would want to present um, to a judge, not just, what may be written as a um, not just the wisp itself, mm-hmm. and, and not and the and the scope 
of it as it's defined or the purpose of it, and then all of the areas that might be covered, endpoint, security, access management, vendor management, patch management, all those things. I mean, in addition to that, I would be wanting to show a judge, judge, this is a WISP that clearly qualifies as an affirmative defense because we didn't just sit down and write this up in a vacuum or go and find some template online. We actually oriented our WISP to an assessment of our risks within our system. Ah. So, so critical to me is a risk assessment. I, I don't think you can have an effective WISP if you don't know your where you're vulnerable and you can't know your vulnerabilities without a risk assessment, which should also include penetration testing right. regularly. So, so if they engaged with uh, yeah. web check security to do a risk assessment and a penetration test, that's self-serving, right? Then uh, yeah. probably they'd be able to have a, a more affirmative defense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because if I'm on the other side, if I'm representing a class of consumers or a class of patients or employees, I'm going to attack the, the, the assertion by the organization that they have an affirmative defense by saying that WISP is inadequate. That is not what is contemplated under the statute as being as sufficiently securing information or addressing administrative technical and physical safeguards that are required. So, for example, let's say an organization submits a three-page document that says, this is our WISP, the purpose of it is to define our, our program consistent with the Utah statute, and then all they do is mention the training they're going to do once a year. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say to a judge, judge, that is not adequate Therefore, the affirmative defense doesn't apply to them. Um, but if I'm if I'm in the plaintiff's shoes and I'm wanting to be effective, I mean, if I'm at that organization that's trying to assert the affirmative defense effectively, I'm saying, here's my program. It's, it's 20 pages. It's well thought out. We sought input from various stakeholders. We also sought input from vendors, from some of our business partners. But most importantly, Judge, we did a risk assessment. And we're not going to show it to you unless we're back in chambers because we don't want this to be uh, handed out or known publicly. And there's a mechanism in a court proceeding for that to happen. And I'm just going to, in that type of situation, focus the judge on the work that was done in that risk assessment. Very good. Now let, let's let's talk about a, a, a not so happy scenario for a minute, shall we? Um, you and I have heard in the industry, and there are, this applies to many clients, um, but we have heard uh, horror stories before, Romaine, of uh, the Federal Trade Commission, and maybe you can describe their role to our listeners, but the Federal Trade Commission coming down on a company that's leaked privacy or other critical data. Um, because they they couldn't demonstrate that the business owners had a concern for cybersecurity, that there was any program or anything that would qualify for this kind of an affirmative defense. 
and and that the FTC would then come forward and uh, imply or uh, make them have um, a cybersecurity audit for a couple of years until they know they're on on track. It is well, let's talk about that for a minute. What, yeah. What what is it that would cause a business to to have that kind of censure by the Federal Trade Commission? Yeah. So the federal Federal Trade Commission. Part of their, their their jurisdiction relates to um, protecting consumers, consumer rights, mm-hmm. um, restraining trade to the point where it's not debilitating consumers, harming consumers, their ability to purchase. It's about leveling the competitive playing field as it relates to security, the FTC's role is to ensure that an organization is not deceptive about the types of security they say they will have uh, for, for the data that they collect or that it's not unfair. So say, for example, the FTC would say to an organization that has a data breach um, that had no security, that they violated the FTC Act because it's unfair of them to not have had security when they were making profits from the collection of data for whatever product or service they're providing. So right. in the last three years, they've been aggressive in going after companies that have data breaches um, or that don't maintain the privacy of their data, the personal information they collect properly. And they will mandate against the company, they will mandate companies implement what the statute, what the Utah statute is saying provides an affirmative defense. They will require companies to implement a written information security program and they will even define many of the technical requirements that should be included in that, as they did with Equifax back mm-hmm. in 2019. Right. Um, and they said, here's 26 things that you must have in place, and we're going to check every year that uh, you you do have those things in place for 20 years. Yes, and, and penetration testing is one of those I happen Pen- to penetration. know. <laughs> well, well, penetration testing is it's one of the main ones because that's identified um, by the FTC as a way to know your risk. Right. If, 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 you, if you're telling consumers and the FTC that you have a um, rock-solid defense cybersecurity program, then – you you can't you can't just say that you've got to have you've got to back that up with attempts that have either been successful um, or unsuccessful and the responses to that or just planned attempts like through a penetration test and then show the report that was part of that and what you did to address any vulnerabilities that were exposed. Right. Right. This is so interesting. Romaine, what would trigger the FTC? Do you have to be a big business? Obviously, everybody knows who Experian is. Uh, but yeah, yeah. what triggers uh, or what size of business triggers the FTC to actually come down on a company? I mean, let's face it, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses in the United States. Many of those are technology yeah. businesses, SaaS businesses, etc. 
and, yeah. and, and, and there are several thousand breaches a year. The FTC doesn't look into all of those ransomware attacks or data leaks. So what are the triggers here in your, it's, in your it's, mind? So there's, they actually have a hotline. So it's consumer complaints. Interesting. Yeah. They, they, sometimes it's business partners. Sometimes it's victims that will call and complain. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's something that's well publicized. Um, sometimes when a data breach happens, an organization has an obligation mm-hmm. to notify consumers. And in some states, they're required to notify an attorney general's office. Right. And sometimes the FTC will see those notification letters to consumers or to a state AG's office, and they will decide to investigate what was filed to understand how the breach occurred and then commence an informal investigation to see whether the company had appropriate um, uh, was meeting an appropriate level of security. And if they weren't, then they will formalize their investigation and threaten to bring suit or engage in settlement negotiations to ensure that the company that suffered the breach is um, um, responding appropriately. Wow. And so they have, they have only 40 to 50 lawyers, mm-hmm. but they have up to a thousand employees throughout the entire commission um, agency. And a lot of those employees are technologists, um, uh, people that are responding to consumer complaints mm-hmm. who will bring to the lawyers, to the commissioners, to the bureau chiefs, the types of cases that they think will get the attention of a lot of organizations. Mm. Rather than just the one they're going after. Well, my goodness. So first of all, I I didn't realize that the FTC was, and maybe this is naive thinking on my part, but it was that large that you've got, you know, thousands of employees that can gather the data, process the the complaints, the claims. Yeah. uh, And and, and even though there's only 50, 60 lawyers, that means the volume of uh, not necessarily suits, but investigations bringing down the, the full authority and power of the FTC, yeah. they've, they've got a tremendous amount of bandwidth there. So what you're saying, yeah. Romaine, without actually saying it, is that no business is safe. It, it really, if, if you're a small business of 10 people providing a cool mobile app, but you get uh, just 10 customers complaining about the same app that, hey, I use this app, and then my social security number that I had to use on this app, I'm just using this as an example, uh, it was used to, to um, open a bank account <laughs> in, you know, Sioux Falls. And, yeah. you know, yeah. th- then what you're saying is that potentially that's going to trigger the FTC to, to say, okay, yeah. there's a problem here. And, and the small business saying, uh, you know, thinking, well, we're small. We, we don't need to do all these things. Well, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you right. need to make the investment. Right, right. I and mean, I don't know the inner workings of the FTC mm-hmm. as to what their cutoff is about what type of investigation is going to get the most attention and therefore fulfill, you know, their their goal of protecting consumers. But if you look at who they've 
entered settlements with in the last three years. It's typically tech companies. Um, sometimes it's mortgage companies or mortgage analytics companies. It's companies that collect a lot of data, that are data brokers, data hoarders. Um, Facebook was a company that was investigated. Google right. investigated, of course. Equifax we know about. All of those companies um, paid massive settlements. Um, TikTok paid massive settle- settlement as well. So they, they tend to go after the big companies, but you know, small companies and service providers and vendors are also companies they've gone after as well. Wow, you, you've given our listeners a lot to think about here, Romaine. I promised you we'd keep this podcast to about 30 minutes today. We're actually at 33. This is such an interesting topic, but I'm going to wrap this up. For our listeners, uh, Romaine is so in demand that he has uh, uh, 40 or 50 emails he hasn't even read yet today, and some of those may be <laughs> incidents that he needs to respond to from a legal perspective. Yeah, I hope um, not. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Romain, for our listeners, as we wrap up here, um, this, I guess, has been a preview of uh, your keynote speech. You're one of our keynoters uh, at the Salt Lake City Cybersecurity Summit coming up on um, uh, Wednesday, June the 30th, right? That's correct. Yep. Looking forward to it. Uh, and we are looking forward to hearing more. Uh, well, give us a recap. So, I've, obviously, you're probably going to talk about some of these things. What are some of the other things that... You're, you're going to be speaking about at that conference. Yeah, so I think um, I'll be talking, of course, about written information security programs, mm-hmm. how a risk assessment uh, dovetails with that, and then also how an incident response plan is becoming uh, a requirement by law also, and then what should be included in that incident response plan. I'll also be talking about how we got to this point uh, to where Utah decided to provide a safe harbor statute like I did. Um, I'll be giving background about um, uh, some of the legal defenses a company can assert in the event of litigation res- resulting from from a cybersecurity mm-hmm. incident. And that's really geared towards just readiness and then resiliency after an incident happens. So, um, wow. Yeah, that, that, that's, 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 uh, that's, a <laughs> that's good. That's steak, man. That's, that's a steak dinner. Or if you're vegan, that's the eggplant, man. That's important stuff. Yeah. This, this is going to be a, a, a real cyber feast. So to our listeners, uh, again, this is the only active that, that we know of. I could be wrong, but all of the conferences have been canceled due to COVID. And so at web check security, we were able to pull this, uh, together, really quickly uh, with some great sponsors. Uh, I can't list all of them here at, at the moment, but Armstrong Teasdale is one, Nexus IT, SoftServe, uh, now CFO, uh, Security Metrics, uh, Security On Demand. We've got some fantastic sponsors that will be coming to, uh, to, to present and also to have booths so that you can wander around and see what's the latest and greatest in technology. Uh, and Romaine is one of those key speakers. And if there's one session that you don't want to miss, you don't want to miss yours, Romaine, <laughs> is what I'm thinking. <laughs> it, it, it's going to be um, fantastic. Uh, so uh, 
for our listeners, you can go, this is very simple, to register, go to webcheckSecurity.com. That's it. You'll get a pop-up that says, hey, you want to register or learn more? Click on that link. And then here's the key. There's a super secret code. And if you're listening and paying attention, you can register with that super secret code and you can get it for free. Otherwise, you pay 50 bucks. And here it is. It's WebCheck, W-E-B-C-H-E-C-K. And you've got one too, uh, Romaine. What's your super secret code for our listeners? Oh, I, I, Greg, I don't, I'm not aware of it right now. I think it's just security. Anyway, you can try both of them. If security doesn't work, they can try okay. web check. Yeah. And, okay. and, I'll, and I'll just Sorry. give the listeners a clue. Uh, yeah. When they put in their name, right above the first name field, there's, a, there's an esoteric blue link. Uh, this is like a video game hack or something, right? There's this little blue yeah. link that says apply code. A lot of people miss that. Click on that. It will open up a, a little field. Uh, you put in the code uh, web check and uh, click apply code and the $50 will zero out and you register and you're good to go. It's an all-day conference. You don't have to stay for the whole day, but we're excited about it. It's uh, All of the information is there at webcheckSecurity.com uh, on the registration form. It's going to be at the uh, Utah Larry H. Miller Conference Complex in Jordan Commons. Uh, it's just going to be a fantastic conference, and it's the only one that's live in North America, so far as I know. The rest of them have all been pushed to the fall, and many of them are happening, but they're virtual. And We're tired of virtual conferences, aren't we? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. this is going to yeah. be exciting. Well, Romaine, uh, one final takeaway then. Um, what would you like our listeners to know uh, in just a, 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 a few words or a few sentences uh, about uh, HB80 and cybersecurity and qualifying for Safe Harbor? Oh, just that um, the, the law is requiring organizations to take steps towards protecting the data that they collect, maintain, and store. And, and it's, 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 it's best to get ahead of those things by understanding what parts of those laws actually give guidance on how to be ready for cybersecurity incidents. And that's what I like, like about the Utah statute. Is it, is it provides direct references to uh, frameworks that are accepted and being developed by, by very smart people in the information security sector. And that is NIST in 20 critical controls. That's, that's perfect. Actually, the CIS, uh, they just changed it. It's only 18 now, but they've kind of consolidated uh, so, so that even makes it easier, right? <laughs> Instead of 20, it's only 18. Well, Romaine, <laughs> I, I want to thank you uh, today from the bottom of my heart uh, for, for being here. Uh, th this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, and, and wrap this up. Um, folks, get a hold of Romaine if you want to learn or have a retainer with a cyber lawyer. The first call should be to your lawyer when you're breached. So you can reach Romaine at 720-613-7083 or R, as in Romaine, R Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L at ATLLP.com. R Marshall at ATLLP.com. So folks, reach out to him. He's, he's the best in the industry. Uh, Vista wishes to thank its sponsors, Vivint Smart Home, Nexus IT Consultants, um, 
Call Vivint today at 1-800-570-1313. That's 1-800-570-1313. Or for White Glove Cybersecurity and IT Assistance, contact Nexus IT at www.nexusitc.net. Or you can call them too, 435-659-2533. Today's music has been provided by Suit Up Soldier and can be downloaded on Spotify, Apple Music, and other popular platforms. Romaine, thank you very much from the bottom of my heart, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks very much, Greg. Have a good weekend. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay.